Chatter, 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 chatter. Oh, beautifully done, I'll tell you. Now, you see, you can be calm. It worked out all right. It uh, looks like it may even possibly have a point of reference that we can draw upon for future use. Right, gang? <laughs> uh, by way of a disclaimer before we begin, uh, I must... Uh, I, I feel that I feel constrained to do this because there's a lot of nervous people. You know, it's 20th century guys walking around spitting. Of course, you know, there's a, a general feeling that the world, the earth, the cosmos revolves around the individual ego today. Right, gang? Of course. It's the way it should be, too. Of course. It's obvious that it's true, right? <laughs> and uh, since this is true, I must, uh, and I feel uh, uh, almost uh, uh, constrained to say this, that the following 45 minutes of uh, pure, unadulterated passion does not necessarily represent the uh, feelings or the glandular structure of the station to which you're listening to. I just thought I might point that. And I also might point out this, too, that there will be moments of excessively bad taste. So I don't want uh, any confusion here. There will be moments of, of uh, unbelievably banal thinking. I don't want any confusion there. You see, it's designed that way. <laughs> How's that for pure evil? And if you're going to fly your kite, friends, fly it high, right? It's Friday. And the evil that lurks in the hearts of men knows no end. As the weekend, the first weekend of spring, comes lurching over the horizon like some fantastic iceberg with just a just a little tiny tip showing above the stormy, turbulent sea of existence. Ah, the winds of desire that blow out of the vast forests. <laughs> the little guttering embers of the lost and gone memories of time. <laughs> oh, those darkening avenues, those swirling alleyways of evil. <laughs> That's pretty good stuff, right, gang? And even now, hurtling over the vast highways of America, past the infinite Howard Johnsons of life. Countless 20th century citizens on this Friday night. The opening moments of the first weekend of the spring solstice are about to make a mistake which will pursue them like the hounds of hell throughout the last days of their time. In other words, are you sure that that chick is with you is the one you really are thinking about? <laughs> I can see this guy driving along in his Mercury, you know, his 53 Mercury, the one with the skull and crossbones in the back window, with the two eyes that light up, one green and one red, if he's going to turn left or right. Slobart, of course. With the leopard skin plastic polyethylene... Uh, Sears Roebuck, upholstery. Hurtling through the night, looking at his loudspeaker, so what's this nut talking about? 
tragedy lurks everywhere. Friends. It lurks on every hand. Tragedy, excitement, drama. All of it. Uh, which uh, reminds me, by the way, we have a little salute that we are going to have to do on this Friday night. You know, as part of our vast public service programming, we occasionally salute the victims of our time who uh, rarely get much more than just a snide cackle in the bushes. Uh, we're talking about salutes. Uh, we don't often think of what chickens do for us. I mean, you sit there and you eat yourself a couple of scrambled eggs for breakfast. What about that poor chicken? you realize what you're doing? Think about it, friends. What does that egg represent? That's not that hen's hobby, you know, friend. That's right. What do you do? You say a uh, couple of scramble, that's all. You go into Needix, you holler, give me a couple of scramble eggs, and you glop them down. Some people are even so obscene as to put ketchup on them. Think about that. Evil. Rotten. Of course, that's mankind, naturally, you know. The way we are. And so tonight, we'd like to say just a little bit about a chicken there. Have a note here from uh, the Associated Press. Now, that's official, you know. Chickens don't often make the AP wire. And it takes a hell of a chicken to make the AP wire, I want to tell you that. Not, uh, and quite often, it's a fatal move when a chicken makes the AP wire. But we have a note here from the AP wire, Oklahoma City, a hen owned by Larry Brumbelow, an amateur chicken farmer. Recently, that's an interesting concept. I suppose there are the pros. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I imagine he gives his eggs away. But uh, nevertheless, an amateur chicken farmer, this chicken laid an egg measuring... Oh, wait a minute. Now, calm down. Where do, you, where do you hear this, friends? This chicken laid an egg measuring three and one-eighth inches long and six and three-quarter inches around. Around, friends. Think about it. It's not six and three-eighths inches long. It's round, that big. It's like a little, you know, like almost like a cantaloupe. This chicken laid an egg, you know. Now, the egg is abnormally large and somewhat rare. That's typical uh, professorese, said Dr. George Newell, head of the poultry department at Oklahoma State University. Well, I don't know whether it's just beginner's luck or not, said Mr. Brumbelow. Modest men, but I plan to stay in the chicken business a while longer. Maybe I'll hit the jackpot again. Well, the chicken didn't. After bringing forth the monstrous egg, it staggered two feet from the nest, and that was the egg. Oh, how like so many of us. Laying this one giant square egg, staggering two feet from the nest, that's the end of the ball game. <laughs> thank you, thank you. I'd just like to see a little consideration for your fellow creature from time to time. A chicken laying a fantastic square egg. Of course, this, uh, uh, this, this is not an uncommon thing. Uh, of course, square eggs can come in many different... Uh, abstract forms. Like I know this one guy who uh, who worked ten and a half years on a novel. Ten and one half years on a novel. It came out. It sold 1,790 copies. It did not sell to the movies. It was not made into a play. And it was a reason. It was a terrible novel. Well, he just wasted away. 
what he did. Well, actually, he married a lady with a lot of money. And uh, in a sense, he did the same thing the chicken did. I mean, there's all kinds of deaths, friends, you know. I mean, there are many kinds. But the thing that was important was that he never realized this, you know. You couldn't tell him it was a bad, bad, bad book. Now, you could not tell that chicken, look, chicken, what are we going to do with a six and three-quarter inch egg? That would make 17 omelets. And they're probably not very good omelets at that, you know. It's the fact, <laughs> the fact of the matter are, and is, always, continually, that we are being pursued by our own fantastic dreams. Always. Chicken laying a square egg. I got a letter from one guy who's a principal of a school. He says, don't tell anybody I listen to you. All right, I won't tell anybody you listen to me, friend. I won't tell you anything, friend. It's all right. Not anything I could tell you, I'm sure. <laughs> one of the great myths. So speaking of myths, this is WOR, friends, New York. And uh, how about it? Do you have the beer button ready in there? Good. Who uh, played an actual Easter bunny? Oh, oh, listen, we're going to have a lot to do. Uh, we're going to have a lot to answer for when we arrive before the great bar of justice, friends, all of us. Every last one of us. And uh, this friend of mine was a bright, uh, bushy-tailed type, you know. You, you see them all over. Of course, it's, uh, this is New York. This is Madison Avenue, the whole thing, where everybody sort of converges. And they come from every place. Cleveland, Euclid Heights, Indiana, places like Dismal Seepage, Ohio, they come. And they all come. It's like a gigantic trek to Mecca. They come seeking God knows what, but they come. And it's as if it's as if the whole country, you see, is kind of tilted. And uh, New York is on one end of the country, and the rest of the country is tilted up because of the fantastic weight of New York. And the people keep rolling downhill. And they wind up at 92nd at Lexington and places like that, wandering in and out of shrafts with their instamatic cameras and waiting in line to see a Rock Hudson picture in Radio City. Can you imagine that? I, I would love to be that kind of person, to wait in line to see Rock Hudson. Uh, <laughs> you know, at the, yeah, oh, they stand there with their faces red, and they stand for three hours in front of Radio City, waiting to see a picture which is playing back home for half the price. But nevertheless, this is part of the great search for what? That's right. Every night they sit down at the news school, searching. Ladies wishing to express themselves. People looking constantly. They buy plants at Woolworth. They sprinkle them. And then they die. They buy dachshunds, which grow up and bite them on the calf of the leg. <laughs> they buy mustangs, which turn out to have balsa wood transmissions. Yes. Fly your kite, friends. But nevertheless, uh, this friend of mine came. He came to New York. You know, he wanted to make it big, and he got a job in the agency. He actually did. He got a job. He had this nice suit. At the, he was very official, and he got up very early in the morning and went in every morning, and at the, he made phone calls. And he was very good at making luncheon dates. At the, he would make a luncheon date every morning at 10.15 with some other guy that was good at making luncheon dates. And they would go to the right places, bright and chipper, his hair always cut right. He bought all his clothes at Barney's. He did everything right, you know. Well, then one day he was called in. And the boss said, uh, Clarence? Well, his name is not Clarence. We'll use that for editorial sake. He said, Clarence, we've got this account. And they have an Easter promotion. Clarence? 
if they have an idea what they would like to do, they would like to have somebody dressed like an Easter bunny. And they want this Easter bunny to uh, come to one of their main stores to make an appearance. And the boys in the merchandising department have thought uh, that since you had a little uh, theatrical experience back at the, at the Purdue, that you'd make a nice Easter bunny. Well, he was a bright, honest, reliable, sober young man. And so he uh, said, that, well, okay. He did not realize, you see, <laughs> like most of us, what a fantastic maelstrom of crisscrossing emotions and fantasy he was about to plunge into. And so 20 minutes later, he's dressed like an Easter bunny. And at first, he thought it was kind of a good feeling. Everybody secretly likes to wear costumes. And I think probably 75% of the hippie movement towards costuming is because we're all basically consumed by desire to be in showbiz. I mean, it's a very deep, especially in America. Everybody secretly wants to write a play or be in a play. Well, this is one of the reasons why we're so fantastically in love with movies. We don't really love movies particularly. We love the idea of seeing actors. We like the idea of a, of a totally fallacious plot that has nothing whatsoever to do with your life. Have you noticed that everybody in the underground in movies always wins? Or if they don't win, they're noble. It's not that way in life. Have you noticed that all good guys in movies are, are either tall and have high cheekbones and are sensitive? It's not that way in life. Almost every good guy that I've ever met has been somewhat shaped like a uh, fire plug with feet. And every guy I've ever met with high cheekbones and who was sensitive, Dad would sell his mother to the glue factory. But we don't want this. <laughs> this is do, you know, this is no good. Because it confuses us. And we, we, we like to think that tall, thin politicians are more honest than short, fat, bald ones. And so you notice the rash of tall, thin politicians recently? Okay. It's as if your bone structure has something to do with your basic moral fiber or your ability to comprehend the difficult situation with the economics of Peru. But that nevertheless, so showbiz has lured us on fantastically. Oh, boy. I mean, there's hardly a kid out there who right now at this moment wouldn't flip out of his bird if he got a call from the, you know, from the head of uh, the junior class and says, you're going to play Hamlet in this junior play. You just got the sensitivity. It's coming out of you, man. Just flowing out of you. By the way, the least sensitive people I ever met, truly, as a group, are actors. They are about as sensitive as the average Gila monster, friends. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm really very serious about it. I'm telling you this as a man who's in the business. And, uh, yet I, I, I'm going really, really to believe that almost everything is about 90% right out of the kilter of the way we think it is. Almost everything is 180 degrees, the opposite of what we perceive it to be. And so we talk of sensitive actors and insensitive insurance men. Some of the most nervous people, sensitive people I've ever known were insurance men. They cry incessantly. I know, oh, I'm serious. I know one insurance man, you spend three hours a day down at Shrafts on Lexington just crying. I never knew an actor who did that. If he ever cried, heaven forbid, I mean, his agent was about to be eviscerated. <laughs> or eviscerated, if you prefer that. <laughs> the only crying he did was with fire in his eye, man, and a contract in the other hand. But uh, nevertheless, uh, this is all part of the scene. So my friend, he, uh, like uh, most of us, if being told to put on a bunny suit, the first impression we would have would be a wild, exultant joy. Showbiz. No bunny suit. Who out there would not like to play in a Western? 
By the way, would you please dig me out my Western music? Please. I have an idea for that. Because it's all part of this, uh, it's this, uh, you know, this urge to, to make it big, make it all the way. What do you think baseball is about? Football. Have you noticed that football has become a star sport? It has nothing to do with teams. We go to see Joe Namath. He's a star. He's the Barbara Streisand of the American Football League. Joe. It really is. It, uh, and it's, it's all part of that. Uh, um, you know, it's, it's that drive to see yourself up there big and beautiful. Hey, you know, I'm making a prediction. You know what I think now? I think today, I think one of the reasons that, uh, that people are having actual trouble in schools is because the teachers are human. And, and most of us have been brought up uh, by way, and I say anybody who's alive in the 20th century has been brought up in the fantastic technological reproduction of non-people. That real heroes are on the screen. They're not in life. They're on the screen. We accept Lee Marvin being a hero. But if Big Fred next door shows up, oh, come on. We can't accept this. We totally accept the concept. Oh, we, we accept past heroes. You know, like a play 1776. We will accept uh, uh, we will accept heroes of the past, or uh, heroes that step out of novels. Have you noticed that writers today have become heroes, not their characters? Mailer is a hero. Not, none of his characters are. He is, uh, <laughs> and so so this this uh, this acceptance of the larger than life figure as the real figure has caused problems in school. So here's a kid, you know, he's used to the fact that all people of authority are 17 feet high, 8 feet across, and are in full color. I mean, his old man is none of those things. His old man is 4 feet 9. You know, drinks beer. You never see scenes of, uh, of, uh, of Gary Cooper drinking beer, sitting around with his feet up on the chair. Never. And so I think that uh, ultimately, when the revolution in education comes, there won't be any people in the classroom other than the kids. There will be a big screen. And the same guy that they hooted at when he was live will now be very valid because he's got a frame around him. And he comes on with music behind him. That's all part of it. It has to be produced. I mean, you, you can't just show up now. Oh, this is uh, Mr. Snotgrass, and uh, today we're going to talk about uh, the Punic Wars. Will all of you get out your workbook uh, and uh, turn it to uh, Chapter 7? You'll see in the first paragraph of Chapter 7 there is a reference to the problems, the economic problems that were being uh, suffered by the Scandinavian peoples at the time of the Punic Wars, right? You see that? The You're not going to believe a guy like this. Not at all. What kind of a history... A teacher, do you really want in your school? I'll tell you what kind you want. You all file in, see. Now, it doesn't look like a classroom. It tilts down like a theater. That's right away. And people give you a program when you come in. There's a little girl who hands you a printed piece of paper, see. And, uh, and it has the credits of the person you are about to see. Big Fred Watson played the role of General Lee last year in the, the class of History 3, which won four Oscars, at the, which, as you know, uh, a great, tremendous critical acclaim, and you'll find that uh, he is even better this year 
in his portrayal of the early American West. And... And out of the swirling darkness of the beaded screen comes a vision of a long stretch of dusty desert. And out of the purple haze, we see Big Fred Snodgrass, history teacher, dressed in his worn chaps, his battered saddle over his shoulder, his wind-scarred face, the face of a man who has seen the frontier at its worst and is prepared to deal with evil as he finds it. The kids lean forward. And the narrator's voice, played by Alexander Scourby, roars throughout the classroom. The saga of the American West was more than the saga of man's economic press into the vast, unplumbed stretches of an unknown continent. It centered on men, a restless, a restless breed of man. And then there's a quick dolly in, and Snodgrass's face fills the screen. And then there's a shot along that stretch of gleaming rails. And you see, coming out of the darkness... Uh, an advancing train, pulling closer and closer, bringing the sheep rustlers into town, and... Oh, come on. How could you how could you ignore a history class like that, friends? I mean, do you see the future, friends, in there? Of course. Of course. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty obvious. Now, uh, of course, uh, the motivation plays such a great part in this... <laughs> And, uh, and uh, I, I, think, I think one of the best ways to ensure a, a, the success of any class is a choreography to begin with. I think all teachers will be given a two-year course in the choreography, group dancing, so that the teacher doesn't come slouching in. You know, nothing is worse than a teacher slouching in, you know, bending over a little pot, uh, comes wandering in. Uh, this will never get the attention. And I think another thing that's important, too, is lighting. I think classrooms with all those yellow light bulbs hanging down, and forget it. Gene Rosenthal will design the lighting for each class. And the, the, it, will be, it will be designed, you see, to augment the class that is being taught. In other words, it's not just general lighting. For example, if you teach, uh, let's say you teach uh, logic. How do you see lighting logic, friends? or lighting for logic. Is it soft and warm? Is it the, is it the glow of a, you know, a, a bucolic scene? Not at all. The class is filled with the students. They march in. And then the lights go down. It is dark, suddenly. And all the class... You know, the class has to be an audience. It can't be a class scene. It's an audience. It's dark. And then up near the desk in the front there in the classroom... A thin, high glow. A pure blue light. It is the light of total logic. 
suffuses the blackboard with a nimbus of mystery and the rightness of things. And then a tiny white line appears on the jet blackness of the slate board, a line of pure Euclidean clarity. Oh, isn't that great? It connects A to B. And then the line marches upward and connects C. And now you have two sides of a, of a beautifully realized triangle. And then the line marches down from C and connects A by George. And the kids are watching this fantastic electronic miracle before their very eyes. And then a puff of smoke and suddenly, once again, a figure appears superimposed on that beautiful triangle. Is he colored flesh tones like you? You don't trust the flesh in logic. No. He is a man who seems to be made of silver and blue. A man with mere slits of eyes that glow with a tiny red aura. Yes. A man who stands motionless for just an instant before that Euclidean triangle. And then you're ready. Side one. Cut one. No, no. Give me the informer. You'll find it on that. That's all right. Don't worry, baby. And that while we're doing that, do you have another one of those little whoopies in there, please? If you... uh, I, I, uh, I think motivation plays a great... We better get, let's get these other commercials out of the way here fast. Uh, wait, wait till they start building the critical faculty and the equipment. Think about that for a minute. And uh, your, your TV set just won't go on for hours. Or, uh, or uh, for example, uh, a typewriter. You sit down and you start writing this bad novel, and it just spits it out right back at you. You know, they're working on this. Are you aware of that? That that is the next big move in cybernetics? is to build in the equipment a critical faculty. It has nothing whatsoever to do with logic. It has to do with aesthetics. And uh, there will be some statements made, ultimately. In fact, did you, did you hear the, uh, the record of this machine playing Bach? You've heard that. Yeah, it sure does. I mean, it plays a hell of a Bach. In fact, uh, it did a little Vivaldi there, too. Not only Bach, it's had a tremendous repertoire. And it plays Vivaldi, a little Scarlatti. I like the Scarlatti it does. It plays Scarlatti with the with that proper acerbic coolness that Scarlatti needs, being basically, of course, an emotional composer, as opposed to Bach. Now, <laughs> and, uh, this machine just knocks this stuff on. It doesn't even bother to uh, sweat when it does it. Just turns it out and plays it. So there's a little glimpse of the future, friends. Just a little glimpse. And oh, we've got that Gal Friday spot. We have a note here. Mr. Smashing pops up constantly in Rona Jaffe prose. Mr. Smashing is also called Mr. Wright. He's this uh, superman who uh, waits there next to the broom closet, and he recognizes your soul, baby. So if you want your soul to be recognized, you call Gal Friday Services. I mean, quit messing around with that bad job you got. So uh, call him at uh, 687-7210. 687-7210. Hey, we've done all the commercials, right? Even, uh, you know, in spite of everything. But uh, I, I, I say this. I had a moment of terrible excitement here just about uh, 
Oh, about 15, 20 minutes before I go on the air, you see that all this mail comes in. I get more junk mail. I'll tell you, I get fantastic. I must be on some incredible mailing list. I keep getting a letter from Stockholm every couple of months that calls me Dear Aficionado. And it, tells me, it sends me these pictures of these girls. And I never knew I was an aficionado of that kind of stuff. It says, Dear Art Lover. They have special 8mm art lover films. And what do they see in those films, gang? You even know in there? I don't know. I, I, I think it springs from the time when I was 10. And uh, I bought myself a, a dollar's worth of postcards at the post office. And I got this magazine. And uh, I sent a letter or a card to every ad in the back of the magazine that says, Brochure on Request. Send card. And I sent some that said, 50 glamorous poses and that says art students need only apply you must be over 21 so I sent the cards in and uh, the unfortunate thing is my name is the same as my old man's and about two or three weeks later the old man is getting these fantastic letters in the mails <laughs> it uh, brightened things up around the living room I'll tell you considerably especially since he got to like them and uh, he began to send for this stuff all you know, see I'd open up a can of peas is what happened so I went back to collecting stamps. But uh, nevertheless, uh, these bits of motivation that they hit you out of the blue, you just never know when they're going to come. And today I get this letter. And I couldn't for a minute realize, you know, I couldn't figure out why I was so excited looking at it. It was just a plain ordinary letter, you know. And then I realized what it was. On the letter, there was a silver star, one of these little stars, you know, that you buy at a dime store. I looked at that thing. Why did I get excited? Because there was a silver star in there. And I realized there are many of us who whenever we see a little silver or a gold star begin to sweat inside with excitement. Why? Well, did I ever tell you about Miss Nelson? I had this teacher named Miss Nelson. And uh, she was kind of tall and skinny. Didn't say much mysterious teacher. You know, some teachers are very open, and uh, you know them. And, uh, we had Miss M.L. Scott, for example, who was always crying. Miss Scott was a big fat lady, and she would read Evangeline and would cry. She was kind of like a surrogate mother. Miss Bailey, you know. <laughs> Miss Bailey was always asking for our sympathy. She would look at you and say, you don't know what I go through here every day. So, you know, this was like uh, everybody's grandmother. But then there was Miss, oh boy, I'll never forget Miss Nelson, because she was mysterious. Wouldn't say anything. She'd come in, and she'd look at us, totally inscrutable. She was more inscrutable than Charlie Chan. She would look at us. And when you're in third grade, man, that made, you know, it begins to score. She would just look at us coolly. And after about the third or fourth week of struggling through Miss Nelson's class, Miss Nelson one day walked up and down the aisles after having read the, a book report that we handed in on that Friday. And on certain desks, friends, I want you to listen carefully, she just walked up and down the aisle, and on certain desks, she would take out of a little box she carried in her hand a gold star, which she would lick with her tongue and paste it on the desk. Guess who didn't get a star? I don't have to ask you, friends. Well, right ahead of me was this chick named Patricia Smith. She was down there in the S's, too. Patty Smith 
had a row of 17 stars across the top of her desk. I mean, it was like being in the same fighter squadron with Rickenbacker. You know, with all these planes written all over the side of his plane. And what do you got? Nothing but holes in your plane. You know, you don't get any stars. No stars. No stars. Well, this went on for months. And then, one day, Miss Nelson, on her usual Friday parade at the desk, never saying anything, she put on my desk one, one pristine, beautiful, shining, virginal, silver star. Now, the silver star was a second-rate star, friends. The gold star meant you made it all the way. A silver star meant nice try. I loved that silver star. I mean, it kind of, you know, the desk, all the desk had was, you know, dirty stuff carved into it and stuff like that. But that silver star. And ever since that time, friends, silver stars, gold stars, I don't know, deep down inside, I'm going to pin a star somewhere.